Welcome to Timberline Windsor. Thanks for joining us this weekend. We are a church family that strives to let love live in every facet of our lives. We at Timberline Windsor desire everyone, every man, woman, and child that calls this church family home to be a part of Connections. To join one today, visit our website or download the Timberline app. Enjoy today's message. It was a gorgeous September morning. United Flight 93 left Newark, headed for six-hour flight straight forward to San Francisco. Somewhere over Cleveland, though, the flight took a drastic change, hairpin turn, and headed straight for Washington, D.C. As things clearly became disturbed on the plane, passengers would soon find out about the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center in New York City they would soon come to know that they, too, found themselves in an instrument of terrorism. And a 32-year-old man named Todd Beamer picked up the airphone and simply dialed zero. He got a hold of an operator uh, stationed in Chicago named Lisa Jefferson. And those two would talk with an unfathomable calm for 15 minutes with Todd letting Lisa know everything that was going on on the plane and ultimately asking her to make sure to tell his two sons and his wife that he loved them, including someday sharing the same with his baby girl that was on the way. And when a few of the passengers had made up their mind to do whatever they could to thwart the terrorists using their plane to murder more people, They steeled their courage, they banded together, and they took their determined action at Todd Beamer's last recorded words. Maybe you know what they were. Let's roll. Todd Beamer was a graduate of Wheaton College, a man that our our friend Dr. Jerry Root that spoke a couple of weeks back had actually personally discipled in his home numerous times. I think that's a discipleship that bore fruit, don't you? That one day, Todd would go on to sacrificially give his life to protect others. A very Jesus-like thing to do. Mark 11, Jesus turns to Jerusalem. Six chapters left in Mark's gospel. Six more months in this 18-month series on the gospel of Mark. And starting today, it's going to really intensify and slow down the pace a lot. Six more chapters, six more months, focusing on the greatest seven days in history. And as Jesus turns to Jerusalem, it's like his focus and his priorities are set. No turning back now. He steals his courage. He surrounds himself with his people and he says, let's, let's roll. The 25 verses that we're going to journey through today could be an entire month's worth of sermons, 
Each piece that the author Mark presents to us necessitates its own context, its own explanation, and its own implications. So fortunately, this isn't a one-time encounter with this passage, or at least it doesn't have to be. You have Bibles. And if you don't, make sure you don't leave this place today without getting a Bible out in the Great Hall for free, or, or grab your phone and download a free version of the Bible. This doesn't have to be just what we encounter in this passage from from what you receive from me. I encourage you, I implore you, engage with this passage yourself later on this week, as we want you to be doing every week. Read it slowly. Read it personally. It was written with you in mind. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colts? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus enters Jerusalem. Let's roll. Starting with some advanced preparations. In order to kind of immerse ourselves in this, I want us to think like, or try to think like a first century Jew for a bit. You've faithfully grown up in temple, reciting and memorizing all kinds of scripture. And like everyone, you've got your favorites, especially around holiday time. Because of the geopolitical situation your people presently find yourselves in as a resident of Jerusalem, You long for the restored glory days of the kingdom. I mean, how great it must have been to walk these very streets of Jerusalem under the great kings of Israel and none greater than David himself. David has his own song. Psalm 118 proclaims kingdom cries to the Lord that you would have sung over and over I want it to be on the screens, and I want us to actually say this together. Say it with me. Save us, we pray. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. See, in Jerusalem, from the home of the temple, the house of the Lord, come these cries, these praises. It's like a beloved Christmas carol sung in the midst of all the trappings of the holidays. And for you, 
as a first century Jew, it is holiday time. Because this season right here, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's your most sacred, your most sentimental, your most emotional and celebrated holiday, Passover. Oh, remember when God intervened for his people long ago. Remember when he took down the armies of Pharaoh and saved the people and God's spirit passed over our ancestors, saving them on his way to freeing them. Oh God, that you would do that again. Free us from our Roman oppressors. Save us. That, by the way, save us, that's the meaning of Hosanna. When you see them uh, shouting and proclaiming as Jesus enters Jerusalem, Hosanna, Hosanna, it means save us, please save us. The holiday spirit is emotional and high in Jerusalem during Passover. And as Jesus now enters Jerusalem, in the midst of your holiday spirit, you're seeing him as Savior. Save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from your house, from your home. Your first century Jewish eyes might even have Zechariah 9 on your mind now that you're seeing how Jesus is coming into town. Listen to this. Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Your king is coming to you, Jerusalem. Righteous and having salvation is he. He's even riding on a donkey, on a colt. It it all fits. You've heard all about the reports of this man, Jesus. It's not been a secret that he's coming to your hometown, Jerusalem. And as he enters Jerusalem, his entry isn't subtle. He comes like a boxer entering the arena with all the intentional pomp and circumstance of messianic hope. You have waited, you have heard about him, you have dreamed, and here he comes. And here's the interesting thing, especially for those of us that have journeyed through the gospel of Mark and watched what Jesus has done. Here, he isn't hiding his identity. He isn't trying to calm all the pomp and circumstance and attention. He's intentionally leaning into it. He's intentionally like playing chess here, wanting to set the pieces because the religious leaders, how are they gonna respond to this kind of an entrance to their city? He knows how they're gonna respond and he's not shying away from any of it. He's intentionally headed straight for it with determination, no looking back. Let's roll. Jesus sets his entrance up perfectly. I am the Messiah. And the crowd goes wild. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. This is no 
tourist drop-in. This is no celebrity visit. This is the Lord God himself entering his home. And what does he find there? The sovereign Lord coming to see if religious leaders and spaces are fulfilling their purpose to draw people into true worship of Yahweh. How are they doing fulfilling their purpose? How are the priests doing drawing people to true worship of the Lord? Hold fast to that thought. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. (laughs) It's random. Maybe it's just a story included here, uh, letting us know that even the Messiah got hungry sometimes. Oh, I don't think so. I think the author, Mark, is a masterful storyteller. More than that, I think all of this is superintended by the Holy Spirit. No word is accidentally or carelessly or randomly placed. All of this is there with a great big purpose, especially as we enter this final section of Mark's one-of-its-kind good news gospel. Remember how I just told you to hold on to a thought? already forgot it. (laughs) Jesus is the sovereign Lord coming to see if the religious leaders and the spaces are fulfilling their God-given purpose. He's hungry for what he will find there. Jesus is hungry to find true worship. He longs for it ever since back in the garden where God himself walked relationally and intimately with mankind and amidst all of creation. And there was this intimacy and this togetherness. Ever since then, God has been hungry for that kind of connectivity with his people in worship, living out their purpose. And even with that, even with the hunger of God, we're not done with the metaphor of the fig tree. Hold on to that for a bit too. As the Messiah enters Jerusalem, hungry for connection with his people, what does he find? Let's keep reading. And they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not let, allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, saying to them, is it not written, my house, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. The Messiah is asserting his authority. This is my house. The priests are there because I gave them that role, that responsibility long ago. 
And see, this isn't just an ego bravado thing. It would be if he was just a man and not God himself. It would be full of ego. But if it's God himself entering his house, what does he find there? Is it true love, true intimacy, and true worship going on? This is where the fig tree thing is brilliant. A hungry God searches out a tree that has a purpose that was given to it all the way back in Eden of bearing fruit for mankind to eat and enjoy. And when Jesus sees the leafy appearance of a healthy fig tree from far off, the creator comes up to it expecting to see that tree living its purpose out, bearing fruit. That's not what he finds. Do you see the connection yet? As, as the sovereign Lord God Almighty enters his house, enters his temple, he expects to see true faith, the purpose lived out, true worship. But that's not what he finds there. He finds the appearance of religion, but an empty, rotted out core, no fruit. They have all the appearance of religion, but an unfruitful core. The same is true for the crowd. This crowd, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, how do they appear to respond? Hosanna, he's here, come save us. But where are they just five days later on Good Friday? Nowhere to be found. Crucify him. Perhaps the appearance of welcome and worship, but only if Jesus' mission fits into their understanding. What if I'm like the crowd? What if I'm like the temple or the fig tree? The appearance of life and fruit, but when the sovereign Lord really looks through all the outward appearance and sees what's on the inside, what does he see in me? What does he see in you? Hold fast to that one too. We'll definitely be reflecting on that. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. So quick note, kind of to, to deal with it and get it out of the way, but it's also pretty important when you read a passage like this. Some people have misused or misunderstood Jesus's teaching right there to apply to prayers for like physical healing. That if I just believe that Jesus will heal the person that I'm praying for, he has to respond. If I have no doubt at all, that forces God to respond. How do you think the sovereign Lord 
would react if he came into my life, came into these sermons and heard me teaching that? Think he might topple some tables and clean out the church? That is not consistent with the heart of prayer that Jesus constantly talks about. The heart of prayer is people coming to the Lord. First, there's a bug somewhere on me. First of all, recognizing that that he can do anything he wants, even the impossible. He can raise the dead. He can heal the sick. He can do whatever he wants, but prayer is not me ordering him or coming up with some kind of soul condition that forces him to respond. Prayer is recognizing I don't know his will. I don't know how he's gonna act in power. Here's what I do know. He loves me. He knows me. And nothing is impossible for him. Nothing. That's the heart of prayer that Jesus is talking about here. That's how prayer works. And in case that's not going deep enough on Jesus' teaching here on boldness of belief and prayer, this is why, again, I encourage you, don't allow this teaching to be your only interaction with this passage. Dive into it deeper. Engage. Keep pressing the spiritual refresh button to allow the Lord to renew your faith. For instance, you might find it interesting going deeper that that moving mountains was a Jewish common metaphor for something that was considered to be impossible. Whoever, when Jesus says, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, he's metaphorically saying, whoever comes to God with even the impossible can have the faith that he can do whatever he wants. Nothing is impossible with God. Church, I need you to hear that. Not just, yes, I hear you, I could recite it. No, I need you to hear that in your soul with what you're facing in your relationships, with that diagnosis that you just got, with the trials and the suffering and the hardships, nothing is impossible with God. Avail your whole life, your whole heart to the God that says, nothing can stop me. Nothing can stop my will. So if that's true, And if the sovereign Lord of the universe were to come in this temple, this life, here's the question. What would Jesus want to do with me? Like I said earlier, if I am like the crowd or the fig tree or the temple, and in some ways I think I am, with the appearance of fruit, the appearance of life, but a fruitless core, what would the sovereign Lord want to do in me and through me? even the impossible, even the things that circumstances or my own flesh and my own ability have proven time and time again to be impossible to conquer. In a minute, we're gonna sing a lyric in a song that says, you love me as you find me. It's, one, it's connected to one of my favorite presentations of the gospel that God loves us and accepts us right where we are and refuses to just leave us there. His love is too good than to just leave us there. So we're gonna focus on that lyric, you love me 
right as you find me. And for you, maybe where he finds you is facing some impossible mountain of mental health struggles, of loss, of depression. And if that's where you're at, he loves you right where he finds you. I want to explain the reason that I'm wearing this shirt this weekend. Our partners in ministry at Ascent Project have a wonderful, what I think is an unprecedented resource called Altar in the Valley. Altar in the Valley. It's this 24-day experience that we are going to be inviting people into that anybody can access by simply going to altarinthevalley.com. Make sure that's altar, A-L-T-A-R. The idea, the heart behind this is we can, we should, we're invited to build our altars, our expressions and offerings of worship, not just when we're on the other side of things and we see that God's been faithful. Build your altar, your offering of worship in the valley. Build when you're in the midst of it. And this great resource is a 24-day journey 15 to 20 minutes a day, encouraging people to get outside and walk one mile a day, and you're going to engage in 15 to 20 minutes of music, speakers that we've recruited from around the world, sharing parts of themes each day that kind of models a 24-mile rim-to-rim journey of the Grand Canyon that the McGinley brothers, Josh and Matthew, recently took. Here's why I love this resource so much. In 24 days, You can chemically, neurologically reroute your brain where it had been stuck in ruts of unhealthy thinking. There's freedom there. And we wanna invite you into that. We wanna invite you into faithfully journeying alongside of others. There's resources that authors that have contributed to this added as well online. And if where God finds you is in the midst of a valley, staring at the seemingly impossible around you, we invite you to build your altar there. Say, this is where I'm gonna offer up the Lord in worship. We'd love to journey with you in that. You're not alone. You love me as you find me. Maybe where God finds you is offering fickle worship. Worship that's professed in words and intentions, but not actually followed up on. If that's where you're at, if you're new in faith, if you have never decided to be baptized following your salvation, you heard the invitation from Chris. We would love for you to come to the class tonight to draw that line in the sand and say, God, I want you to see not just the appearance of religion and faith. I want you to see worship. And I'm going to share this with the church family. We'd love for you to participate in that. And lastly, we never want to neglect that maybe where he finds you is responding to him for the first time. Your most significant decision to respond to Jesus is actually an eternal one. I've never really called myself a follower of Jesus. I've never really allowed him to be my Lord and my Savior. That 
this news that God Almighty sees you and loves you right where you're at and his love's too good to just leave you there. That's stirring something in your soul. If that's you, pay attention to that. In this moment, in this time, you don't need to go another moment of eternity without a response to God saying, I accept. I accept your love. I accept that you turned and headed straight for Jerusalem for my sake, offering me new life. So as the worship team's about to lead us in prayer, let's, let's call upon the Lord together. God, I especially want to pray for those in this church family that, that are facing the need and the opportunity to not just respond in words, but respond in action, in fruit, not just the appearance of religion and discipleship, but lives wholly surrendered to you. God, if that is anybody responding to the gospel for the first time, we would pray that they would know there is celebration erupting in heaven. And we would love to be a part of that here in this church family, knowing their name, knowing their story, that they would tell someone or come up here after service when the prayer team's up here and pray with someone or get baptized and make that choice. God, I thank you you don't ask us to clean up or straighten up in order to follow you. You love us right where you find us. And your love is too good to just leave us there. Jesus, in your name, in your heart, and for your glory, we pray. Amen. We hope you encountered the love and power of Jesus in today's service. If you're interested in giving for joining serving opportunities and much more, visit TimberlineChurch.org connect. Have a great week. Go be the church and let love live.